Hi, welcome to another inspirational message by Pastor Alex Papas, Senior Pastor at Oceans Unite Christian Center. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you all this morning. Great to have you here this morning. Just want to check around. Let's see who's, who made it to church this morning. Good morning. <laughs> Just want to let you know in the back there, I got my eye on you. Especially those of you that sit right in the back in the dark. <laughs> I know most of you have small children, so we, we understand. But if you don't have small children... <laughs> Jesus wasn't always nice. He did get firm sometimes. He was always loving, but he was not always nice. He called the Pharisees a brood of vipers. That wasn't very nice, but it was necessary. So if you misbehave, I will call you a brood of vipers. (laughs) I'm just joking. All right. It's great to have you here this morning. Thank you guys so much for coming. It's spring break. A lot of people are away on vacation, but still many of you came out. It's awesome to be in the house of the Lord with you. We are continuing our series on the book of Revelation, and we are in the third church. The first church was the church at Ephesus. The second church was Smyrna, and today we're going to be on Pergamum, which is the third church. If you have a look at the map, you'll see the map. I'm not going to put it on yet, but you'll actually see it's Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum in, 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 in order. If I can ask him, actually put the, the, the map up real quick of the two churches. There you can see on the map Ephesus at the bottom and then Pergamum further up. And actually all the churches kind of go in a circular motion. So Smyrna is just above Ephesus. And this was the Asia, Asia Minor <clears throat> at the time, which is... West Turkey today, this is where these seven churches were. And it's interesting, there's, a, there's really a reason why these two churches are on this map. And that is because there's a lot of things addressed in the first church that are addressed in this church. The only difference is, is that the one church is commended for what they dislike that this church embraces. And that's a problem. And we're gonna dive into that this morning. This message is in your Bible, many places it will say the compromising church, the compromising church. Ephesus in your Bible is probably labeled the loveless church, which I feel is a little harsh, although the Bible does tell us that they were losing their first love, but that doesn't mean they had no love, they just were losing the most important love, which was the love for the Lord. But he also commends Ephesus because of their hard work, because of their dedication, and because they hated anything that was not the truth of God's word. I think that Ephesus had the advantage of having great leadership. Timothy, the disciple of Paul, was the pastor at Ephesus at the time that this letter was written. And even that the Lord still rebuked them and said, but I have this against you, that you have lost your first love. And that's a very serious accusation because he proceeds by saying, 
if you do not repent, I will come and remove your lampstand. And that's frightening. Because without the lampstand in a church, you are nothing more than dead. The lampstand represents the Holy Spirit, the presence of God. The lampstand represents the truth, everything that we need to really be a church. You know, the Bible speaks of the seven spirits of God or the seven flames or the seven, the seven lampstands. And we know that the seven lampstands represented by the seven churches, but every one of those lampstands has seven little, little flames in them that represents the seven spirits of God, which is the one Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit operating in the church, how many of you know we're in big trouble? Without the Spirit of God in the church, we are dead. We need the Holy Spirit. Then we looked at the church in Smyrna, and the church in Smyrna was the persecuted church. Now, the truth is, is that all the churches were persecuted at that time. But Smyrna in particular was very aggressively persecuted. And we know that it's partly because of the decree that went out that they had to go up to the temple to swear allegiance and, and make a, a, you know, and, 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 and that Caesar would be their God and they wouldn't do that. And it cost them in the city where they couldn't buy, they couldn't practically live. And so the persecution was very intense. And we see Polycarp, the pastor of that church, ends up getting he ends up getting martyred in a very dramatic way. Most scholars tend to agree that it was burned at the stake and he was not burning while he was burning. So while he was burning, he was preaching. And while he was preaching, eventually they, they couldn't handle it, so they went and stabbed him in the heart with a spear so that he would die. And this is what was going on in that city because of the persecution. So that's why Smyrna is the persecuted church. Today we're going to Pergamum, and Pergamum is a very, very interesting church because Pergamum is known as the compromising church. So today's message is going to be intense. Thank you for your overwhelming excitement. <laughs> because we're gonna discuss a subject that sometimes we don't wanna talk about, which is compromise. But if Jesus gives a warning to compromise, I think we as the church should pay attention. So let's go to Revelation 2, verse number 12, and let's read the address to the church at Pergamos. Revelation 2, verse number 12, and to the angel of the church at Pergamos write, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Repent, or else I will come quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
to him who overcomes. I will give some of the manna to eat and I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. Amen. So that's the address to the church at Pergamus or Pergamum. And let me give you a little bit of history about this specific city. The first thing you need to understand in order to understand what's going on in this letter is that it is without question the most occultic city of that day. Occultism was absolutely thriving in the city. So it was hard to be a Christian in Pergamum. The city was an old city, over 400 years old at the time that the letter was written. It was a great city. It was the capital of Asia. It was the hub of Greek god worship, mythology specifically, Greek mythology, Zeus, Athena, all those Greek gods. It was very interesting. I could talk a lot about that specifically, but one day I'll actually do a whole sermon on that, just so we can talk about that, because those things come from a specific place that's very interesting. The city was built on a hill. They had become known as the protector of Greek culture and Greek god worship. In the city was the temple of the goddess Athena, Dionysus, Zeus, which was a great temple, a great big temple, which I'll show you a little bit later, and the god Askepolis, As. Skepios, sorry, Askeplios, that's the right name, Askeplios, and we'll definitely talk about him later on as well. There was great confrontation between the church and false religion, paganism in that city. So being a Christian would not be easy because the opportunity to compromise was great. And unfortunately, you'll find out that there were people in the, in the church that were actually saying, listen, it's okay to compromise, you'll be fine. And we'll talk about that as we go on. So let's go to Revelation 2, verse number 12. Revelation 2, verse number 12. All right. I think before we do that, no, let's go on. Revelation 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things says he who has the two-edged sword. Now, Every address, in the beginning of every address, Jesus addresses the church in a very personal way. In this church, remember in the last church, in, in, in the church in Smyrna, he says, who was dead and now is alive. That's how he speaks about himself. Who was dead and now is alive and is addressing a church that's suffering great persecution and intense martyrism. So the, the address was personal and encouraging to them. In this letter, he says, these things says he who, who has the, the sharp two-edged sword. And at that time, the proconsul of that city was granted the right of the sword, the power to execute at will. And Jesus comes on the scene and he says, listen, I am the one with a two-edged sword. And don't let me, for, don't, don't forget that ultimate power over life and death is in my hands. And this must have encouraged the congregation Later on, we will also see the two-edged sword as a stern warning. But without any doubt, those who were reading this were encouraged by it because he is the God of all gods. He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And these false gods 
have nothing in him. Can you say amen? So, in verse 13, he starts and he says this. And now he explains to us the intensity of what the church is dealing with. I know your works. In other words, I know what you're doing. I know what you're dealing with. I know what's going on. And where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. So he's saying, listen, where you are is where Satan's throne is. How many of you know that if you have to be around a place where the devil is, it's gonna be intense? Satan's throne, many scholars believe, refers specifically to the temple of Zeus in that city. Can you put that up for me, please, on the screen? If you have a look on the screen, that's the temple that was built to the, to the god Zeus, to the false god Zeus, and you can actually see that it's shaped as a throne, like you could sit in it. So some scholars believe that's why it says where Satan's throne is. And he says there, I know your works where you dwell. You dwell where Satan's throne is, where things are intense, where there's a lot of occultism, where there's a lot of opportunity to compromise, where you're being threatened. Are you with me? So that's what he experiences. But that's not all. Because also in the city, and I mentioned this early on, is the false god Asclepios. Now, Asclepios is an important character, and I actually didn't say too much about him in the first service. I'll talk more about him now. Because Asclepios was the god of healing, represented the god of healing. Can you put the statue of Asclepios on the screen, please? This is important because take a look at this Greek god, Asclepios, and have a look at the staff with a snake wrapped around it. How many of you know today that the symbol of medicine is a snake around a staff, right? So we see that, but that's only the beginning because Satan is a terrible imitator. If you study scripture, you will find out that there is another story about a snake on a staff. And what had happened was the children of Israel were disobedient to God and were complaining. So a snake went out and began to bite them and they began to die. And they cried out and repented to God. And in Numbers 21, verse number seven, this is what it says. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses, so Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So we see here that when they were bitten and they were sick, they would look at the serpent and they would be healed. Now in the days of this church in, in Pergamus, in Pergamum, the people would go to this temple to be healed. I want you to try and understand something, that they believed with all of their hearts, the people of that day, that these gods would do what they stood for. So people would come from all over to this temple to come and be healed by 
by, by that specific God. They would come to be healed by him. And I want you to know that there are people that did get healed. Don't think nothing happened. If you study history, you will find out that there was demonic forces working, and we'll talk about that today, and there was breakthrough. So not every miracle is from God. Come on, somebody. Amen. That's why Jesus said, you know them by their fruits, not by their miracles. But miracles are also important. And you need to listen to last night's message to understand that. I would love to talk about that now, but I can't. And this is important for us to understand why. Why am I telling you that this happened? Because you must understand if the church appeared on the scene and the church had no authority or power, no one would follow that religion. So the church had to operate in power. That's why when Paul goes to Corinth, he comes and he actually says, listen, I did not come to you with the wisdom of man. He says, all I did was preach Christ and him crucified. And he says, I want you to put your faith not in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. Because listen, you've seen, you've seen in all of Greece, you've seen false gods, you've seen false, false, false miracles, false things. But I wanna introduce you to the God of gods. There was a statue that, was, that, was, that they said was the unknown God. And Paul arrives on the scene and he says, let me tell you about this God. He is the God of all gods. He is the Alpha and Omega. And when he came into town, he didn't come with doctrine, with opinions, with teachings. He came with a demonstration of God's power and his love. And people's lives were transformed and changed. What makes you think the church should be any different now? In other words, if Asclepios was operating in Pergamos, the church also had to operate in the power of God for people to be convinced and persuaded that that was the one true God. And it was like this all throughout Asia Minor at this time in the church. And let me tell you something, there is no difference now. Let's go back to verse 13. Revelation 2 verse 13. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name. So he's commending them. He's commending them because they're standing strong, even though they're in the midst of all this paganism, and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, and now he overemphasizes it, where Satan dwells. So in the midst of all of this evil in the city, in the midst of this occultism, witchcraft, sorcery, all the stuff that's taking place, there was a church that had individuals that were standing strong. One of them was Antipas. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of information about his martyrdom. What we do know and what most historians tend to agree upon is that he was made a spectacle. In other words, more than likely, he was either one of the first martyrs in the city or he was you know, taken into a position where he was in front of everybody and everybody got to see his martyrdom. But at the same time, they also got to see him stay strong. They got to see him not deny the faith. They got to see him as faithful all the way to the end amidst and among where Satan dwells and where Satan's throne is. It's very, very powerful. He did not compromise. And the Lord is saying, listen, let's read it again. I know your works 
and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days. In other words, when Antipas was being martyred, you continued to stay true to the gospel. You continued to hold on in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. That's the compliment. That's, that's where he's commending the church. And now it's about to get really interesting. He says, but I have a few things against you. So you must understand, first of all, he's commending the church because they've stayed strong. But there's a few things he has against them, and particular against a few individuals. So the church was faithful, but there's a few individuals that are causing trouble, and you'll see that in a moment. But I have a few things against you, verse 14. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who took Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Those of you that don't know the story of Balak and Balaam, Balaam was a prophet and Balak was the king, and basically what happened was he called the prophet to come to him. It was an oracle, a false prophet, or a prophet that had fallen. We don't know all the details, but basically he gets calling up to come to the king, and the king says, listen, I want you to curse, I want you to curse the children of Israel. And so he comes to curse the children of Israel, and he tries to curse them, but he cannot. And he knows he cannot, because he knows that whoever God has blessed, no man can curse. But you see, you must understand, I wanna put it into context, because the same way that the church in Pergamum was under great oppression in the midst of sorcery and witchcraft, nothing could touch them. They were blessed, they were protected. They were the children's, the king of the children of the king. Can you say amen? They were safe, they were good, they were strong, they would survive, they were faithful. But what happens in the story of Balak and Balaam is that Balak says, or Balaam says to Balak, he says, Listen, three times I've tried to curse them. He says, but don't worry, I have something that you can do. He says, send the men of Israel, send, send the, the, the woman of Moab to the men of Israel, and they will cause them to stumble. Now, I want to read quickly. Let's go to Numbers 25, verse number one. Numbers 25, verse number one. Now, Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the woman of Moab. So what happened was, the children of Israel went down, and the, the, the Moabite woman came down, and they invited the people, verse number two, to the sacrifices of their gods. The woman lured them to the sacrifices of their gods and basically said, listen, you know, if you wanna get busy, you know, you gotta participate in everything that's going on here. So the men ended up, the Bible says, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against them. This is important, because you must understand, doesn't matter what testament you're in, when you enter into idol worship, when you enter into what is unclean, you can get into trouble. And he's saying, the Lord is warning, I have this against you, 
that you are entertaining this doctrine of Balak and Balaam who put a stumbling block before the children of Israel and caused them to enter into idol worship and sexual immorality. That's what happened in the Old Testament. And what was happening in the church now is that the same thing was taking place. Listen, in the city, in order for you to be a, a, a citizen that would be involved in politics, would be involved in, in the community, you had to go to the temple. Also, if you wanted to buy meat, you would need to buy the best meat at the temple because people would take the best meat to the temple to sacrifice that meat to idols. And so he was saying, listen, you're encouraging these Christians to participate or to go to these places, and what's happening is it's causing them to stumble. They're not strong enough. Are you with me? So Paul gives a stern warning. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14. Watch what he says. And it's in the same context. 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And then if we jump to verse 18, look at what he says. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? In other words, listen, the meat that they're sacrificing and, and these idols, they are nothing. He says, rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice they are sacrificed to demons. He's saying, listen, this is demonic work. This is all it is. These are not gods. These are not powerful gods. It's just they're sacrificing to demons. It's evil. And watch what he says next. And not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. In other words, what would happen was they were saying, listen, don't worry, you don't need to be religious, you don't need to be over the top, you can go to the temple, just don't partake, just be careful, just watch yourself. And what would happen was the young Christians would go there and they would end up stumbling. A stumbling block was placed before them. But that's not all. Everybody say, but there's more. There's more. <laughs> okay, there's more. <laughs> Let's go back to Revelation, four, Revelation 2, verse 14. Are you all okay this morning? All right. Revelation 2, verse 14. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. In other words, they were encouraging people, listen, don't worry, you can go, you can partake, you'll be okay. Before the to eat things sacrificed to, old, old, to, to idols and to commit sexual immorality. And then he says this, thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And then he says this, which I hate. He's not talking about the Nicolaitans. He's talking about their doctrine. He says what they believe, what they're teaching what they're doing to my children, I hate it. Are you with me? Now, if you look at the language here, it's very important. Verse 15 says, thus you also, and the word thus in the Greek is the word hutos, and it means in the same way, in the same way. You are trying to destroy the church from the inside, the same way. 
the same way that this is happening, the same way that the, the doctrine of Balak and Balaam is setting a stumbling block in, the Nicolaitans in the same way are doing the same thing. Let's go to Revelation 2.15 in the amplified version. I wanna just show you because it opens up the Greek a little more and gives more detail. Look at what it says. You also have some in a similar way are clinging to the teaching of the Nicolaitans those corrupt, corruptors of the people, which things I hate. Now, remember I taught you about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans in part one at the church, or part two at the church of Ephesus. The Nicolaitans, they believe, originate, or the doctrine comes from an individual whose name was Nicholas, who in Acts chapter number six, verse number five, is one of the, one of the chosen that are, are, are set to take care of the woman and, and to basically take care of waiting tables. Included in that was Stephen. Included in that was uh, Philip. And there were others as well. But the only two where there's more detail given is Stephen. And the Bible says Stephen was a faithful man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And then Nicholas, it says a Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. So the only two that have more detail are these two. And it's interesting because a proselyte was someone that went from religion to religion, but specifically in his case, Jewish, practiced paganism, and then converted to Judaism, and then went from Judaism to Christianity. In other words, he was quick to change religions. And not only that, but his roots were paganism. His roots were paganism. Now, Understand that the Bible says that this, he says, he says, I hate this. I hate this. That's what Jesus is saying. I hate this. And the reason why he hated it was because it would destroy the believer. This doctrine would end up leading to the believer being destroyed. Now, let me talk a little bit about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans would teach they would basically teach that the law has ended and that you could live however you want. Some scholars suggest that they believed that your body is defiled, but your spirit is saved and going to heaven, so you don't have to worry because anything you do in the body doesn't matter because your body's dead already. So the children of Israel or the church at that time would go to the temple and be legal to participate in idol worship, sexual immorality, and it's fine because they saved, you know? They saved, don't worry about it. Once saved, always saved, right? So you can do whatever you want. And you know, don't worry because what you do in the body doesn't matter because your body's gonna go to hell anyway, right? Your body's defiled, so it doesn't matter because you're doing it with the flesh. That's basically, essentially what they were teaching. That you can participate in anything. You're not under the law. Christians are under grace. Immorality is okay. Possibly even to the extreme of even pagan worship. You can even worship those idols. Don't worry about it because remember, you've been reborn. You're saved. And Jesus says, this is what I hate. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Paul was actually very, very intense on the subject. Very intense on the subject. Look at what he says. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? 
If anyone defiles the temple of God, look at this, God will destroy it. Come on. Let's read it again because, you know, maybe this is just my translation. If anyone defiles the temple, which temple? God's temple. God will destroy him. And he's talking in the context in verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple? So if you defile the temple, God can destroy you. Ooh, that's gonna mess up some theologies right there. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. The word defile in the Greek is an important word because it means actually to corrupt. It means to ruin. So in other words, what would happen was in that time, is that the doctrine of Balak and Balaam, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, would cause a stumbling block to be placed in front of the Christians. You can do these things, don't worry, you're gonna be fine. But what ends up happening is what they say is fine ends up defiling them and they end up getting destroyed. But God didn't do it, they did it to themselves. Just like Balak and Balaam. No, nothing can harm you. No curse can come upon you. You're under the blood. But if you open the door to compromise, you can get yourself into major trouble. Therefore, we do not compromise. The truth is the truth. If God calls something unclean, guess what? It's unclean. If God says do not participate in sexual immorality, don't do it. If God says that lying is a sin, don't do it. If God says when you sin, repent, do it. Are you with me? Sure, you guys are so quiet, man. I know it's a little bit heavy, but it's important. It's so important. Now, we're not done with verse 15 because I need to show you the intensity of how much the Lord hates this. And you must understand what he hates is when it's taught and then we believe it and then it destroys us. That's why he says, I have this against you, that you have those who are teaching the doctrine of Balak and Balaam and those who are teaching the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and they are causing people to be destroyed. That's what he's essentially saying. Do you see it? So he says, thus you have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. Now, I want you to know that when he addresses the church in Ephesus, he says it like this. He says, he says that you have lost your first love. He says, but this one thing you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That's what he says. So there's a commending there to the church at Ephesus because they only stood for truth. They didn't want or allow compromise. They lost their first love. That was their weakness. But they did not accept compromise and the Lord over, over iterates and commends them for it because this is this church's potential downfall is that if you're gonna teach something that will cause people to stumble, eventually the whole congregation will be destroyed. Eventually, everyone will be destroyed. At least a lot of people will. Most, most people can get destroyed. Well, how can I use such strong language? You see, the Lord hates it so much that the word for hate there is the word miso in the Greek, miseo, miseo, and it means to detest, 
utter contempt, hostility. In other words, he's, he's, he's got a hostility, a contentment towards this. And we see this level of hostility from Jesus in John 2 verse 13. Let's go there real quick. John 2 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cord, listen, he's very relaxed right now. Can you see? He's not mad at all. He's not mad at all. He drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changes, the, the changes money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a, hard, a house of merchandise. And then the disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for the house was eating, was, has eaten me up. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. In other words, listen, the Lord has a passion for his house. He loves his house and he will take seriously anything or anybody that comes to defile or destroy his house. And the same way that it was in the temple, which was a building, it is the same way in your life. If someone comes and places a stumbling block before you that can cause you to become defiled, he's gonna get together his whip and he's gonna come in there and have something to say about it. I think that's really cool. Are you going to come and teach me some rubbish? I want you to know Jesus is going to come whip your butt. Why? Why? Because he loves us so much. He wants us to finish strong. He wants us to stand strong. No matter what we face, no matter what demonic force there is, no matter what power there is, no matter what draw there is, no matter what lust there is, he doesn't want anybody to say, listen, why don't you just partake in this? You're gonna be okay. You can't really be defiled anyway because you're saved and you'll make it to the end no matter what. He has something to say about that. So he says, and he uses that word hate there. But then he goes on. And he says, in verse 16, repent. In other words, listen. And he's talking to those that have an issue, those that are allowing this stuff. Repent, change, go the other direction. What you are doing is wrong. What you are doing is wrong. Repent. This is not judgment, guys. This is grace. Amen. When the Lord's word comes at you and you can see that you're wrong, don't justify yourself or don't try and, and, and water down the gospel for the sake of compromise. Because if you do that, the only one that will get hurt well, that's not true. You can hurt many, but you will most certainly hurt yourself. And so he says, repent. And then he gives a warning. A warning. He says, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them. Who's the them? Those that are causing men to stumble. Those that are teaching this in the church. I've got something to say about that, says the Lord. Are you with me? 
He says, I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, I don't know about you, but from what I understand, a sword means that there's gonna be some cutting. There's gonna be some, some cleaning out. Are you with me? The Bible tells us that, that if, we don't, if we don't do what's right and we defile the house, we can get destroyed. How much more those that are causing those to stumble? Are you with me? So he's saying, listen, you gotta get this out. The church in Ephesus, this they have right. They hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. They hate that doctrine. So he says, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against him with the sword of my mouth. And then he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is an address to all the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. This is so beautiful and so powerful. I want you to understand that at the end of every address, he addresses you and he says, listen, if you heed these warnings, if you heed what I'm saying here, you will make it all the way to the end. You will be an overcomer. Can you say amen? And then he gives this beautiful example. He says, and I will give some of the hidden manna to eat to those who overcome. The hidden manna, and then let me just read the rest to you real quick. And I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So there are three things that you will receive. Hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. Now, in the scriptures, Moses took the manna that was given to the children of Israel in the wilderness that fell from heaven, that came down to the earth. He took some of that manna and he put it in the ark, okay? In Jewish teachings, they teach that in the Messianic era, we will see a restoration of that manna that was in the wilderness. That's what they teach and believe. It's, it's nice, it's great, okay? But what did Jesus say in John 6, 47? John 6, 47. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. That's the manna that we will eat of forever. He is our bread. He is our manna. Can you say amen? And if we overcome, we will eat of that bread forever. Hallelujah. Amen. So powerful. The, the, the second symbol that he gives is a white stone. The white stone, unfortunately, could mean several different things. So it's very hard to kind of pin it down. But what they say is it could have represented a voting pebble. In those days, you were given like an amulet or something to go and vote. And so they say that perhaps this would represent that you would have rights again. I don't know. Or it could be an inscribed invitation to a banquet. When it comes to the manor, that would somehow make sense. So your name would be on the invitation. You would get this white stone and that would be your way into the banquet. Perhaps that's what it is. I don't know. Most certainly it's some form of victory symbol 
And the other thing that some of the scholars write is that it could be an amulet. You see, in those days, the people would wear amulets and some of those amulets would have crystals in them or the names of their gods on them and that would represent that they belonged to that and even had, there was power in that. Now you would get a white stone and the name on it would be a name that he would either give you or it would be the name of Christ, those who make it to the end. Can you say amen? So we don't know exactly what it is, but what we do know is that we will enter into paradise with him. That's what we do know, and we know that for sure. Those who overcome, amen? The warning to this church is do not compromise, but even more so, do not allow those that come and want to teach doctrine that cause to compromise. There is no difference today, guys. Today we are taught in many circles that you can do what you want because you're sealed and you've, that's it. But the reality is, is that there are people today that because of doctrines that teach that you can live however you want and it'll all be okay, have actually completely renounced their faith. Did you know that? Famous people, singers of famous Christian bands that have been around for years, one recently renounced his faith completely. And then what those that teach those kind of doctrines of compromise will say, they will say, well, he was not really saved. How can you say that? The question though is this, is he now still saved? He's renounced his faith. He says he's no longer a Christian. He's an atheist. The point is, is that the road to deception is not quick. It starts with compromise. A little here, a little there, and eventually can lead to, lead to a place of total deception. And then you decide to do what's wrong. That's what, that's what happens so many times, unfortunately. But the good news to you and I is that the message is given to us and in the message is something beautiful. It's called repentance. Because where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. So if we make a decision, if we've lived a compromising life or have taught a compromising doctrine, we can repent. And then he will come and he will reward you and bless you and walk with you all the days of your life. I don't need a reason. I don't need a reason to sin. Did you hear what I said? I don't need a reason to, to follow false religion. I don't need a reason. I, I wanna serve God with my whole heart because I love him, man. I don't need to be given permission to do what's wrong. I would rather walk in the light and when I make a mistake, thank God that there's grace and forgiveness and I can turn from it and I can serve him and follow him and he is good and faithful and he will forgive me. But that doesn't mean now that I make it an excuse to live a certain way. You know, yes, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, past, present, and future, but that doesn't mean that now you have a license to live how you want for the rest of your life. That's foolishness. That's just foolishness. This church was put in a position where compromise was accepted 
and the Lord is stern against it and even calls those kind of doctrines something that he hates and will violently oppose, basically. So do not compromise, guys. Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching. For more teaching like this and other material, please visit our website at www.oceansunite.com.